Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Taping this in the evening, Sunday, August 27th, 2023. Moving into the 11th day of Elul, 5783. Had a really interesting week. Did two wine trips up to the Shamron, which the truth is that the wine was just the excuse to get people up into the Shamron, to meet the vintners, to see the places. It was really, really pretty incredible on so many different levels. Uh, Came back with the bus clinking and people just met the people uh, who live up there and whom, unfortunately, most people aren't aware of all around the area of Shechem, of Nablus, uh, Elon More, Yitzhar. It was really, as as often as I go and as ha- how well I know these people, it's just always such a joy to introduce people to them and to have them suddenly understand the complexities of life in these places and how strong the people are in so many ways. Um, and certainly not like, uh, you know, with the stereotypes. Um, call on them to be or pretend that they are. So uh, one of the things that we did on the way back, so people had brought uh, cookies for soldiers. So on the way back, we stopped at the Chumus Eliyahu, the one that two months ago four people were killed in, and there were soldiers there. We gave them the cookies, uh, and there was just a sense of, okay, you know, where evil is happening and where bad people, really bad people, are trying to once again take the Jews out of our lands. So we're going to do a kindness. We're just going to give something to people that we don't know who are protecting us and in some little way, um, you know, bring that that goodness, which in my opinion is Hashem and is God, into the world. And that's really the only thing that most of us can do and to just not give up. So we're far from giving up. And as we move into Elul and move into Rosh Hashanah, into the new year, uh, a lot of us here and all around the world, a time of reflection, where can we do better and all of that. But I have a guest tonight, um, David Kerwin, who I've actually known for a long time and is now a published author. It's amazing to me sometimes how many incredible people that I know. Um, and I've read some of his articles in academic and in uh, popular uh, quarterlies and um, all kinds of, uh, and he's published widely on Bible, Jewish thought and philosophy and Hebrew language. And now he has put out a book called Kohelet, A Map to Eden, which I thought was fascinating because it is looking at a, a biblical book, but in a very different way than most people will look at it. So David, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here, Eve. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so uh, Fredo, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into this? Um, I'm uh, not an academic. I'm not a rabbi. I'm just someone who, you know, I spent a few years in yeshiva, as, as is common, after high school, and developed a kind of a love of learning Torah. I learned in a special institution, which unfortunately is, is no longer open, called uh, Yeshivata Kibbutz Adati and Kibbutz Ein Sarim, and I had a wide variety of teachers who taught me to study in a lot of different ways and develop my curiosity and ask a lot of questions. And when I left yeshiva, that was something that I took with me and always was looking to investigate the next thing. If I had a text or a, uh, a passage that was curious, difficult for me, I'd want to look into it. Um, and um, the truth is that Kohelet, or uh, Ecclesiastes, I can barely uh, pronounce, it, <laughs> pronounce it, let alone spell it, so I'll call it Kohelet for, the, for this interview, uh, was actually one of the books of the Bible that probably... Uh, I found the least compelling. Um, it wasn't something that I ever really connected to. There's no real, I never saw a story there. In fact, one year I actually broke my glasses because uh, we have the custom of reading Kohelet on the holiday of Sukkot and I fell asleep and banged my head on the on the desk and, and, and broke my glasses. And so after doing this for many, many years of not finding anything out of it, one year I came home about six years ago, came home and said, 
I, I want to find something in this text. It can't be a book of the Bible that has nothing to tell me as myself. Um, and luckily, I had um, about uh, five years or so before had uh, discovered the the writings and the teachings of um, Rabbi David Foreman from the Aleph Beta organization, who, who um, some of you might know, he does these amazing um, animated videos with uh, content about the Torah and the weekly portion. They now have podcasts, the whole yeah. media network about these kinds of things. And I developed, not just a, became just kind of a fan of his style, but I also developed kind of a personal relationship with him. I was in some groups where he would toss off ideas and and share them. And I came home and I said, well, let me let me try to look through these eyes. What what can what can the text tell me? I wasn't looking for a particular answer. I didn't even have a particular question other than just what does it come to tell me. But when I opened up the book, I I noticed jumping off the page were these linguistic parallels from the opening chapters of Genesis, the, the initial chapters, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Cain and Abel, uh, the story of the expulsion from the garden, all these things. I was like, what is going on here? Why are of all things is this coming out? But there were some verses that seemed to be lifted directly out of it. Uh, if, uh, if you're from, taken from dust and go back to dust, um, there were mentions about uh, living a thousand years like Adam did. There were mentions of sons. There were mentions of uh, uh, rivers and, and building and planting. So many of these things that seemed to be lifted up, and I didn't, didn't know what that meant. So just to make it clear, you're reading this in the Hebrew, okay? Because we're speaking in English to an English-speaking audience. It's clearly your mother tongue. You, you moved here from, from the United States. But you're doing all this in Hebrew, and this is something that I've been trying to get through to my audience for a long time, and they know it already, that if you don't read the Bible in Hebrew, you don't see these linguistic parallels. Yes, that's definitely true. Um, I, I used to think that, well, first of all, my Hebrew, when, you know, I first came, you know, many, many years ago, this was 30 years ago, my Hebrew was not, was not great, and it was a challenge. Um, and, and there are good translations, but every translation is going to always have a sort of a bias. Now, I'm not talking about political bias, although sometimes that's also true. I'm talking about a bias just of the, the goal. Are you trying to be literal? Are you trying to capture the imagery? Are you trying to capture the, the, the flow and the, the rhythm of the text or not? And you're always going to be sacrificing something. So the Hebrew text is really important, especially when it comes to intertextual um, comparisons, because... Sometimes you'll find the same verb, and it'd be easy enough to catch. I mean, even some of the most obvious parallels, I think you might even be able to catch from language to language. But others are much more nuanced and delicate. Um, you know, it might even use um, a word that even doesn't even translate, doesn't even have the same root. I'll give an example. The, uh, one of the verses in, in Kohelet uses the word um, adayin, or uh, the, the parallel of that, which in modern Hebrew means still or... But it spells it without a without the yud. It spells it ayin dalid nun, which might be there might be reasons. Maybe that was the popular way to spell at the time. But that word without the vowels literally spells Eden, Eden right. in Hebrew. And and when you see it on the page in Hebrew, that catches your eye right away. Why do they use that unusual spelling? It's an unusual word. But it's the, that kind of thing is very difficult to catch, and um, it really adds so many additional layers to the um, to the um, to the text throughout the Bible, and certainly in a book like Kohelet, because I really think that the text itself is so difficult at times. It's confusing. It's, it's sometimes contradictory. There's no, it doesn't seem to start in one place and end in another. So you really need to kind of dive into the text to get a sense of what's really going on there. And that was one, that's what I was able to pick up. So Kohelet is considered one of the Megillot, like Ruth, like Esther, like Echa, that more or less tells a story. But you, what you were saying it just a few minutes ago is it didn't seem to you that it was telling a story. I mean, it's 
presumably King Solomon, King Solomon, yes, and you can tell us if you think it was him, why there are words that appear that maybe would have been after him and what the commentators make of that. Um, so why, why, is it, why is it grouped uh, as one of the Megillot? I, I'm less, for, for the purpose of this, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily claim to have the um, historic reasons for why it was claimed in the Megillot. I think even scholars are not always sure today what makes them, you know, why was one book, you know, maybe you had made an argument that the book of Jonah could have been, uh, would have been a class, it would have been a great Megillah, would have been, you know, because it's about the same length. And, not to mention all the books that even weren't put into the biblical canon that we have found because they were kept for us by others or in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. But I, but I strongly agree. And this is something I noticed for a long time. It actually had bothered me that even before I found this book that, you know, you have the stories of Ruth and Esther, which are classic stories of, you know, they're, they're compelling stories. Um, and even the, even the books yeah. of, of um, Shir Shirim's Song of Songs is written in the uh, the kind of uh, flirtatious romance between the uh, whoever the, the the lovers are, you know, whoever the, the metaphorical mm-hmm. lovers are, and 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 even the book of Lamentations, the book of Echa, has a story narrative. It does it describes Jerusalem as a sitting by herself, and she's a harlot, and and so there's always a, a story to pull you in. Kohelet didn't have that, but when I started finding the connections of Genesis, I realized I think there was that. And as you mentioned, I, what is there? Where do we go from there? What does that come to tell us? And I realized that when I found, and I found dozens of linguistic connections, that there must be something to it. So I was interested in who is telling the story in Kohelet. Now, in aside from my the book, I have another uh, a pop, uh, popular website called Balashon, uh, where I write about the origins of Hebrew words and phrases. And I've been doing this for about 15 years now. It's in English. It's in English. So my listeners could go in. Absolutely. Okay. Balashon.com. And so I'm very much aware of the sensitivities of, of language, the different layers within Hebrew, between the difference between biblical Hebrew, rabbinic Hebrew, modern Hebrew. I write about the origins of these words. So I'm certainly no, uh, I'm not afraid, I'm not, I'm not new to this concept. And it's very clear when you read Kohelet that it uses um, what either you could call late biblical Hebrew or even the early budding of rabbinic Hebrew. There's a lot of borrowings from Aramaic, even Persian words. Those words would not have been likely used by, by King Solomon, by Shlomo. Putting him in the time frame, we're talking about like 10th century BCE, more or less. David gets Jerusalem in about 1,000. King Solomon reigns at the, the, ne- you know, the next part of the century, builds the temple around minus 970. So that's his time period. And you're saying that's way before the Persians, that's way before the Greeks and all of that. So, okay, so there seems to be some, that's why some people are saying it wasn't written by him. Right. So first of all, there's no, there's no issues within Jewish tradition of saying it wasn't written by King Solomon himself. There is a Talmudic statement that it was written by King Hezekiah. There's even a, a Midrashic rabbinic uh, tradition that, and this is difficult to translate, but either edited by or, or composed by, it's, they use a word that's a little difficult to know, but by, in the, by, the, by the men of the Great Assembly, which were the beginning of Second Temple times. So what's likely going on here is that it was, um, you know, it could very well have been an oral tradition that was later written down by a later generation, and there's no religious theological problem with that. And redacted a little, or edited a little, or whatever. It was well, certainly I found because of the connections, the person, the the, the there was a strong, uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't patchwork. This was something who was very carefully putting these connections together. Um, but what I'm concerned, what I what, what, fo- what I focus on when I read a text, and I think this is important for every book of the Bible, is what they call author's intent. What are you supposed to do when you read a book? Who what, you could have all kinds of things about who's writing it and the history behind it. 
But the first thing you need to know is, what does the author want you to understand? And then you can go and look at all the other issues. Um, I find this, by the way, in, 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 in dealing with Hebrew words. There's a, what they call the etymological fallacy. The etymological fallacy is when you confuse the origin of a word with the meaning of the word. You know, people say, oh, you can't use that word. It doesn't mean that anymore. Well, words change their meaning, and, and meaning is not the same as origin. And so I don't think the origin, the, the, the historical origin of the text, who composed it exactly when, is as important as what the meaning is. And there is no question in my mind after reading, after reading Kohelet, and I think it's pretty clear to anyone who reads it, that this is talking about, the book is talking about King Solomon. It's written from the point of view of King Solomon. It talks about, he first, first of all, he says, he starts the book by saying, I, I am the son of David, who was king in Jerusalem, and later it says, who was king in Jerusalem of all of Israel. And there's no one else who fit that. But even more than that, he's a king who, incredibly wise, both, you know, has, talks about writing, you know, all kinds of writing wise statements, who had wives, who had money, who built. There, there was no other uh, king in, in Israel, in Judea, who possibly could fit this. And I don't think there's any reason to, to look for another king. In other words, whoever composed it wanted you to feel like you're reading it. I guess a, a secular example might be, you know, if you read Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. You don't have, I mean, could Shakespeare have gotten a Roman text and maybe recompiled it? it fine. But you're, when, you're in, when you're watching Julius Caesar, you're not supposed to be thinking about, thinking about um, Shakespeare. You're supposed to be thinking about Julius Caesar. That's, that's what he wants you to do. Now, of course, you might have interesting levels of things you can learn if you say, well, maybe Shakespeare was talking about, you know, intrigue going on in Palestine this time. And I'm sure there are lessons about that in Kohel as well. But I'm focusing on author's intent. You're supposed to be identifying with, with, with uh, King Solomon, and that's the message. And there's a, what I discovered was a tremendous number of fascinating parallels between the lives of Adam and Solomon. That was something I never thought about before until I started noticing the linguistic connections between the book of Kohelet and the book of, and the book of uh, Genesis. They both were universal figures perhaps unprecedented in biblical time, at least in the Bible, for you know, their, their universal scope. Adam certainly was the only man, so he was the, had the, the whole world was in front of him. In King Solomon, they talk about how his wisdom was known throughout the world and princes came from all over. And there was no one else who was, you know, at least in the world of the Bible, as well known of a Jewish figure as King Solomon. And they both had incredible potential. You know, the whole world was in front of them. They had a special relationship with God. And yet, through unfortunate circumstances of their own uh, choices, they fell from grace. They, had, they, they ended up in, in disaster, expelled from their special uh, places and, and special relationship with God. And to a large degree, in both those cases, it was kind of a search for knowledge that led to their, um, their troubles. Adam searched for the, tree of, the fruit of the tree of knowledge when he wasn't really supposed to do that. And this is, that's, that seems at least fairly obvious in the story of Adam. But if you, read, if you read the story of Shlomo, if you read the story of Solomon in the book of Kings, you can begin to sense it. But if you understand that Kohelet is King Solomon looking back at his life, you can really see he constantly is complaining. He said, the search for knowledge did me no good. What good did it do me? I was, I was supposed to be this wise man, but he ended up making all these terrible mistakes. So those kinds of things in the, the thematic parallels, the stories between Adam and Solomon were what really pulled me in. And that's what led me to um, develop a thesis that what I think is happening in Kohelet is that it's written you know, in, in the form of, of King Solomon, channeling, echoing, reflecting, however you want to call it, on what Adam's life was like. Adam, they, because he could identify with that life, he wrote as if it was, in some ways, wrote as if it was Adam. They, you, you can um, find the sorrow about his children the same way Solomon had difficulty with his, his children later on. You can regret about the search for knowledge. All these things are something that Solomon knew that Adam would have identified with. It's, it's almost like, in some, some ways, kind of like a midrash, like a way of, 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 
interpreting a text anew, um, and by interpreting the, gen- the text of Genesis anew within Kohelet, you get new insights both into Genesis. There are certain things you can imagine and understand in Genesis that don't appear there, and you also understand Solomon's life better. I think a really good example of this is that you don't see any reflection at the end of, their, of, either, at the end of either Adam or Solomon's life. After Adam is expelled from the garden, you don't see anything about um, what he felt about that. Did he regret it? Did he try to reconnect with God? What was his life with Eve like? Did he, was he angry with her for what happened? Did they, re- did they reconcile? Um, well, but in general, the Bible doesn't really give us all that, fills out that picture so much, right? Of course. But that's and, what- and just to throw in, there are those who say that that whole story of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve is, is more of a metaphor than an actual story. Again, that. That, that, that's, that's fine. Again, we, I read the story for what the story is coming to tell me. It doesn't, I don't need to be concerned. I'm not looking for a history book. I'm looking for learning lessons about how to live our lives. Um, and so the lessons I can learn to live my lives are much more powerful than wondering about any individual case. And you can get this from any book you read. I mean, if it, it, if it, if it teaches you the message, um, you know, that's, that's really where the, the strength is. What did you say to me before? You're doing this um, for, you're looking for the literary part of it, not literal. That's less important to you. That's right. Li- the literal message is something you can identify with that speaks to you, speaks to your brain, speaks to your heart, speaks to your soul. That's where things are. You take things literally, there can be problems. I, 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 my, my method is actually similar to the, um, the medieval sage Maimonides, who, when he was talking about Midrash, the way that the rabbis interpreted um, biblical texts, he talked about three categories of people. He mentioned some people take these midrashim very literally and say they have to be entirely true. And he said they're kind of fools because they're not meant to be taken literally. And then he said there's people who take them literally, but they think that they're not true. And they scoff at them. And they say there's nothing to be gained from them because clearly they're false. And he said those are you know, also just as, just as mistaken. He said there's a small group of people who know that these are meant to be parables at times. And even if they are true or not, it's, the focus is what the message is coming to tell us. So that's what I think is going on. The story of Adam and Eve, there's certainly very likely to be allegorical content. That Maimonides himself discuss allegorical content there. Um, anytime we discuss a human's relationship with, with the divine, with God, there's allegorical content because we can't possibly comprehend it. We don't know what creation was like. We weren't there. There's obviously, um, this is totally in, in line with, with Jewish tradition and with general literary tradition, understanding that there has to be something we, we can't understand. So that, that, that in itself doesn't bother me. But like I said, we, we don't know what happened at the end of Adam's life. We don't know if he regretted it. We also don't, and we also don't know what happened at Solomon's life. He is, in chapter 11 of, of the Book of Kings, he's get terrible punishment for all the bad things that he had done and, and, and had worshipped idols. And that's it. You don't see him um, saying, trying to reconnect with God. And he had a very special relationship with God. So what, what, what did he think? Did he feel bad? Did he want to repent? Did he want to reconnect? Um, the sages have all kinds of ideas about it, but they don't really, you know, some things he was opposed, or maybe he was... Uh, you know, terror, all kinds of things happen. So that's what I think Kohelet is. Kohelet is both how Adam might have reacted to the events later on in life and how Solomon reacted to these, how he felt about these things. Mm-hmm. But it can be pretty depressing for anybody who's read this book. Like, everything is Hevel. And I want to now talk about Hevel because for those who read Hebrew, when we talk about Cain and Abel, actually in Hebrew, it's kind of Hevel. Right. So that was the, one of the main things. That, I mean, after I saw some of the um, linguistic parallels, the, 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 the repetition over 30 times appearing in the book of Kohelet of the word Hevel, you know, you can't miss that. It's something that everyone catches when they read it. And it's a difficult word because it means different things in different places. Uh, it's, it's, translators have a very difficult time. They can't find a consistent translation that, you know, futility, vanity, um, breath, 
it's very difficult to translate the word because it, in the different contexts. But I, I interpret it as follows. I, I said to myself like this, once, once I found the connections to Genesis, the, may, the most severe punishment that Adam received, Adam and Eve received after the expulsion, after the, the eating from the tree, was the introduction of death into the world. Um, that was the, you know, they, they had to work, they had childbirth, but death certainly was a major, a major uh, punishment. But who was the first person to die? It wasn't Adam. It wasn't Eve. It was their son, Abel. It was their son, Hevel. Hevel was the first person to die. How would Adam have felt about his pun- the punishment being his own son to die? And not just, so, you know, you, you th- sometimes you go in, in, in you know, Jewish tradition, you go to a shiva when, when you know, an elderly mourning period. mourning period, somebody goes, you know, let's say a, an elderly parent passes away. So you go to there and you talk to them and people sit and they'll talk to you about the stories and they'll sit and they'll, they'll have a very, you know, they'll talk about how they were, you know, when, when they were younger or when they were older and they'll have all, you know, it's usually a very organized thing. You could listen, hear fascinating stories when you go to Shiva. If you go to Shiva, a child passed away, it's not anything like that. People can't really often hold themselves together. And, but imagine going, I've never, I've been to, sadly been to, to you know, that kind of um, house of mourning for a child, but I've never been to one where the parent held themselves responsible for the death of that child which Adam presumably would have because he injured, he, it was his sin that caused it. So I imagine, you know, he would just be saying, Hevel, my son, Hevel, Hevel, Hevel. He repeats himself so many times. There's nothing, all the things I did were pointless. Everything was futile hmm. because of his mourning his son, Hevel. So that's sort of why I felt that it would be repeating it so often in the book. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not the only person who said it. I found hints in different, in different authors who said it. One of the things I did was try to find rabbinic traditions or midrashim or different people who talked about these things and try to combine them and, and a lot of my own ideas as well in the in the text so that was something that that really spoke to me when i when i saw it the way and what that does is it frees you from the need of kohelet to be a linear text because if you go to a house of mourning you wouldn't find a linear discussion you'd find confusion you'd find repetition you'd find mixed messages you know that's that's the kind of thing when someone looks back at their life with regret that you don't have necessarily one you know confident message. You have a lot of different messages, a lot of different positions. That's, that's what I think uh, Kohel is trying to say. So um, one of the things that you touched on before is, you know, that he gets wisdom or this search for knowledge. There's different kinds of wisdom, as we all know. We used to all say, oh, someone's smart, right? Which tended to be more the intellectual kind of uh, IQ, if you will. And, and now it's clear that there's different kinds of wisdom. There's, you know, emotional savvy and there's social savvy and all of that. And one of, you know, we, we say that Solomon gets, he doesn't ask for, he asks for wisdom and then he gets all the wealth and all the physical uh, trappings that go with it as well, which of course would bring him down. But he doesn't actually get, ask for wisdom. He asks for a listening heart, right? And you make a very interesting point because later on in his life, he talks about a seeing heart and that there's a very, very big difference in Jewish texts between listening and seeing, which of course at Sinai gets all mixed up because we're, we're seeing the sounds and hear, you know, and, and you can see why they're going crazy at Sinai and say, stop, we can't deal with it. Moshe, go up and then come down and give us the, the cliff notes because this is just overwhelming for us in our senses. But how do you interpret that, that particular difference? So when it comes to the difference between seeing and listening in, in, at least in biblical thought, I think that generally, of course, there are exceptions, but, but listening is identified with obedience, with, with loyalty. You listen to someone, you know, God says to Abraham, listen to Sarah, we are supposed to listen to God, there's listening, listening, listening. 
Whereas seeing, again, there are times of exception, but frequently it is used as a, a kind of a lustful looking after something. You know, you're seeing, what are you seeing? You're seeing something you want. This is actually something else I noticed in the book. There's another word, which again, as you pointed out, the knowing Hebrew can help you catch these kinds of things. They have these key, a key word, which appears only in a few times in the Bible, but when it appears, it always has a heavy meaning. And that's the root Tor, Tav Vav Resh. Um, it appears in Kohelet a couple times, and the other times it primarily appears is in the book of Numbers. Um, it appears in the story of the spies, the spies who went to, to, to search out the land of Israel. And then it appears later at the end of the, 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 biblical, the Torah portion where it talks about the spies in the, in the laws of Tzitzit, the fringes you have to wear at the, on your garments. And in that, um, in those, both in terms of the spies and in terms of Tzitzit, it mentions uh, seeing a lot. They were supposed to go look at the land and they came back and they looked and everything. It repeats itself, either vision or eyes or seeing over and over and over again in the story of the spies. They clearly had failed in their vision. We talk about vision in English both as a, as a conceptual idea of how you interpret things as well as actually seeing things. And that's where they failed. They weren't listening. They were looking. They were trying to interpret. And in the passage where it talks about the obligation to wear these tzitzit, these fringes in your garments, it says, don't follow your eyes. Don't follow your eyes. You, you're supposed to be following the, the commandments of God. Following your eyes is what's going to get you in trouble. There's actually a verse in Kohelet, which almost is the little opposite. He says something like, follow your eyes. It's almost, the, the, the sages say they almost didn't want to include Kohelet in the biblical canon because that verse in Kohelet contradicts the law of not, of not following your eyes. So my interpretation of a lot of these contradictions that the, the sages point out is that these aren't, they are contradictions, but they're not contradictions. Kohelet is not recommending that people follow their eyes. Exactly. It's someone who's saying, it's saying, look, you want to follow your eyes? See what good that'll do for you. He's, yeah. he's being cynical. He's being ironic. You have to have a little bit of an ear to hear that kind of thing. But what I, what I came to the conclusion is, is that a lot of these commandments, a lot of these mitzvot that we um, receive in the Torah are to mitigate some of these dangers that, that, that um, Adam felt. By the way, Adam also fell to the victim of, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the tree, the fruit was good, was, was, was delightful to the eyes. Eve saw it and she wanted it because she looked at it. She wasn't listening, she was looking. And then, and then uh, God complains, you were, you were listening to your wife, meaning he wasn't just complaining, he was listening to your wife. He said, you were, because you weren't listening to me. You should have been listening, you were looking instead. And she was listening to the snake. And she was listening to the snake, exactly. Mm-hmm. Who are you following? Who are you being obedient to and where are your, where are your, um, your desires? You know, seeing is about desire. So the commandments come to help us mitigate those things. CC come to help mitigate it. I have a whole discussion in the book about how they help with that. Um, there are other um, commandments. I talk about the temple service. I talk about um, issues about uh, Yom Kippur. There's and the, the laws of the king, limitations on the laws of the king. All of these laws come to help us uh, kind of roll in those, um, those desires and also help us become more obedient. And when I say obedient, I know sometimes obedient has a very negative connotation. Yeah. There are people who can think but like... you're not thinking. You're just doing. You're doing. You're not thinking. And I don't think that's true at all. At least not in, not in this case. There are times, I guess. But it's not... I don't think that's what the Bible is encouraging when they're talking about obedience. They're really talking about love. They're talking about intimacy. And I think that's what probably Solomon really regretted. In other words, the, the way he writes Kohelet is kind of the way you can imagine, you know, if a, if a, if a, if a, a person betrayed their spouse... And they had a loving relationship, a very special relationship, but you know, in a, in a weakness or, or just whatever it was, they betrayed them and they, were, and they had to leave their spouse. They couldn't repair that relationship and they were out, you know, on this, you know, whatever, and out of the home. How they would have regretted just, it's, it's not like they said, oh, it's the, 
it's breaking the law, breaking the rule was the problem. It's losing that special relationship. Solomon had an incredible relationship with God. No, you don't find any other king. Even David, in some ways, didn't have the same relationship that Solomon had. And certainly Adam had a special relationship with God, and they both just blew it. So looking back at Kohelet, they're saying, here's how, here's how I can repair it. So disobedience is not about any particular law, but violating a particular commandment. It's about love. I have a, a friend who, who once gave me, I thought was a beautiful analogy. He said about the commandments, he said, his wife tells him every day to make the bed. He doesn't understand why he needs to make the bed. Presumably no one else is going to be in their bedroom besides them. But he loves her. And so he does it. Does that mean there's no reason? Not necessarily. She might have a good reason to do it. But he's not, he's not doing it because of the reason. He's doing it because he loves her and he knows that that's what's important to her. It's not obedience. He's not following like a slave. Mm-hmm. And he's not doing it because he knows the reason. Because even if there was no reason, he would still do it. But when you want an intimate relationship with someone, sometimes you need to say, okay, I'm going to do something for you, even if I don't understand it, and I'm going to follow the rules because, because the, you, my relationship with you is so important. I think that's the essence of the commandments. And that's, by the way, the very, the very, very end of Kohelet is he says the whole purpose of, of, of um, uh, the, it says uh, the very end, we should listen to God, listening to God, and fear him, but fear him in, 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 in being in awe of him and keep his commandments because that's the purpose of, of every, it says, again, here's a Hebrew thing. It says, Kizek kol ha-adam. Now that you can say that's the purpose of every person. But in Hebrew, it's Adam. It's the purpose of Adam to, to listen. And then if you, you it's, it's the, that's what you need. You need to just, don't, all these other things. Solomon had everything. He had, he had every possible rich, riches in the world. He had every, all the wisdom. But all he really wanted at the end of his life was that intimacy he had when he was a young kid who had a dream and spoke to God. He, he missed that. And that's what he said. If I could have just kept that commandment, I would have done the same thing. And Adam would have been in the exact same position. He would have just wished he kept that one commandment and had been able to have that, that special relationship that they had. Wow. And when we say, at least in modern Hebrew, to be a Ben Adam, literally the son of Adam, but what it means in, in modern Hebrew is be a good person. Right. Don't be a jerk. Right. Be a good person. Yeah. Act nice. Yeah, that's that's ultimately, but but it's not only that, I mean, because it's, it is some it is about being a good person, but that also is somewhat autonomous. Right. But it has to be there on some level. There needs to be a little bit of you know, sacrifice or release. You have to be able to um, to give up, give in a little bit. We can't be entirely autonomous. You can't have it. When I, I remember that when I when my it's called compromise. <laughs> compromise, but it's, it's more than that. It's compromise is saying I'm going to do you know you do for me, I'll do for you. This is saying I'm willing to give up of me. The analogy I sometimes like to say is, is if you have, um, in, in chemistry, you know, you have inert elements, you know, inert elements like helium and, and neon, they're, they, they're complete. They can't, they don't, they're not missing any electrons, they're not missing any protons, and, 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 that, and so they're, that's why they're noble, that's why they're inert, but they also can't form a union with any other elements. You can't have, you have hydrogen, I don't, I'm not enough of the chemist to remember the exact details, but you have hydrogen and oxygen to, to form a water molecule. One is missing an electron. One is missing a proton because they're, they're willing to, because they're missing something. That's how they can form a union. You can only form a union if you're missing something from the other side. And that's, we have to be willing to acknowledge that we're not, it's very difficult in today's age. You know, we feel this need to be, you know, every, we can do everything and we are entirely autonomous and people don't like being told that, they, but, but you, you have to be able to, to recognize that if you want to have a successful relationship with anyone and, and, and certainly with God and to a large degree, God himself is willing to pull back and allow us to make those mistakes and allow us to do that because otherwise he wouldn't be in a relationship with us. So that, you know, if he's willing to do that for us, we certainly should be able to do that for him. Right. I mean, the messages for the modern day are just, they're right there. You don't even have to read between the lines. Yeah, it's, it's, um, there's a lot to be learned here for, for today's times. And I think that you know, ultimately we're not so different than, than we were you know, thousands of years ago. Our psychologies haven't changed all that much. We have different challenges, but the values are 
ultimately the same. And I think in, in any case, you know, I, I, I work in a, um, I work in high tech. I work for a very large high tech company that is very like on the cutting edge of probably everything you, your listeners use. And we're dealing with a lot of AI things and people are talking mm -hmm. a lot about how you deal with the challenges of AI and, and how you're going to deal with, is it going to destroy the world? Is it going to solve it? You know, what's going to happen? And I think that ultimately, you know, religion has the potential to, to teach us about values. The values haven't changed. The values of loyalty, the values of truth, the values of kindness, the values of love. Those values are eternal. How you interpret them changes from generation to generation. If we have those values, we can use AI or any tool to, you know, positive, you know, for the right purposes. Without those values, those tools can be very dangerous. That's what that's what they kind of that's why it's it's so it's so relevant today because we need to go back to be able to understand where those values come from and what they can teach us. The same lessons that David and Solomon and Abraham and Adam all learned, they we had the same failures, uh, you know, uh, weaknesses that we have, and we can learn from them just the same way. There's not, you know, that's why literature is so constant. That's that's because we can still teach us those those messages that are still relevant. Otherwise, we would have dropped it, you know, thousands of years ago. I don't have much to learn from the Code of Hammurabi. I'm not saying it wasn't helpful, but I don't I don't identify with those values. But reading the Bible, I can easily identify with, you know, every story pulls me in because I can I see it in my own life. I see the challenges I have. I see the challenges they have, and that's something that's uh, that's very powerful to me. 3,000 years of relevance. Not bad, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. And you have one line, and then I'll let you go, um, that I really liked about Solomon, it, that he left the ways of his father, but he's looking for God. And I think in a world where a lot of people are moving around and changing religions or leaving religions, and I know a lot of people who are unhappy with organized religions of all kinds, of all kinds, but maybe that is the ultimate. That even if you've left the way of your father, Whichever way that was, not everybody has a David as a father. If you if you find God, then that then that's a different kind of relationship altogether. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think that we need to have some. First of all, we need to have to acknowledge there's external forces, or not just forces, but but external guides. In other words, we can't live our life everything inside ourselves because we will make mistakes. That will. I'll give an example. If you look at the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is full of, there were no laws, right? There were no laws in terms of the way the Torah has laws. There are, you know, a few gu guidances here and there. And you have wonderful people in the patriarchs who tried to do the right thing, and they kept failing over and over again. You know, Isaac had difficulty treating with, with Jacob and Esau, and then, and then J Jacob certainly didn't have trouble with his wives and his kids. And, we, and, and so the lesson of this all was... Joseph that, and his brothers. Joseph and his brothers. But they, were, they weren't bad people, but they, even though they did, because they didn't have external guidelines. So having these external guidelines is what the Torah came. So that's why you needed in the book of Exodus suddenly to get a Torah because it was enough people couldn't need, need to be able to say, okay, I need some guidance. I need some external guidance to know what to do. This is what a lot of people are struggling with now when they want to know what to do. Having this external guidance is helpful. Of course, we don't believe it's only external because that's the other guide. That's the other half of it is that if you only view external and you don't listen to your internal conscience, you don't listen to your, your inner voice, then you can take these external rules and interpret them in ways that are completely corrupted and wrong. So you need to listen to your, your internal um, conscience and listen to external. And those, I, I kind of like things like stereo. Stereo works well. When you have two different things going at the same time, then you can find balance. You listen to internal voice and external, and external uh, guidance, and then you can probably find the right path. That's what God is able to provide us. He provided us both with a, um, we're creating a divine image. We, we, we have the ability to follow our path, but we also and listen to external uh, guidance, and between those two, we can hopefully find the way, to, the, the right path for, for ourselves, for our people, for the world. 
Wow. Amen to that. Thank you so much, David Kerwin. Any last word before we sign off? Except maybe just tell people where they can get the oh, book sure. and, and so, about yeah, your so, so blog book, or your website. It's called um, Kohelet, A Map to Eden. It's published by Koren Magid. Uh, it's available on all the major booksellers. It's certainly available on uh, korenpub.com uh, or korenpub, C-O-I-L in Israel. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I'm, if you, I'm also very available online. If you have any comments, I'd love to hear them. And uh, um, thank you so much, Eve, for the opportunity to have this conversation. And thank you. I love, as my listeners know, people who think out of the box, who can take something that you think, what else could you possibly say? There's been commentators for the last 2,000 years on this book. And then you open it up in, in a whole new way. And that is just absolutely beautiful. So I want to thank you. And I hope that my listeners get to appreciate it as well. All right, everybody, Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network, with thanks to Ben and to Tabitha for putting out the show, and to all of you for tuning in every week. I hope wherever you are, you are well, and take care, everybody, and goodbye for now. You're listening to the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com, broadcasting the truth and beauty of Israel to the world. 